Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where we're bringing world-class thought leaders live to you every single Thursday. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, the CEO of Results, and a little bit of uh, harsh reality for people this morning. Unfortunately, what research tells us is that most teams fall well short of their potential. They'd actually be better off and more productive if they worked alone than together. That's pretty sobering. And what we find is that companies that win in the marketplace and uh, are the ones that build strong teams that can execute. And it's hard to accomplish that on your own. And that's really why we started Results was to really help businesses solve this problem. And we work alongside leaders, helping to create high performing teams and winning cultures. And that's also what this show Unleashed is all about. And thank you to everyone who is joining us, whether it's your first time or you've been with us for every episode. This show was designed and built for anyone that has a growth mindset, so welcome. And if you like what you see today, we would sure appreciate your help growing our audience by spreading the message. And the easiest way to do that is you can post anything that you've learned, any questions, any comments uh, about any of the episodes, including today's to social media, and please use the hashtag results unleashed. And over the last three months since the pandemic hit, we've, uh, I, I would say that we've accumulated a really interesting index and library of lessons and learning and information being shared uh, using that hashtag. So uh, pretty cool to see that come together thanks to our wonderful community. And we're gonna sweeten the pot a little bit today as well. So we're, uh, we're not immune to giveaways. We're gonna be giving away a $50 Amazon gift cards to some lucky attendees of today's episode. And there's really two ways to win. You can first of all, fill out the feedback form at the end of the show. And then if you want to increase your odds exponentially, which is a word we're going to use often today, I have a feeling, you'll get an additional entry form for every social media post that you make about today's episode using the hashtag results unleashed. And we're going to let this go until tomorrow morning and then we will make those draws. So when the show is over, be sure to click the leave meeting button and then click the continue button. When you click that continue button, it's gonna take you directly to the feedback uh, portion. And then if your company is working really hard to innovate and adapt and do all the things that we're gonna to talk today about with Jim Harris, we're gonna to try to make that journey a little easier for some organizations. And we're gonna be offering two innovation readiness workshops. So what this is is a two hour workshop for your very own management team to help take inventory of how you're doing with innovation, change, and adaptation, and then start to dive into some discussion about some critical actions that your specific business wants to take to move that needle forward and try to compete better in a digital marketplace. And if uh, you have questions for Jim Harris, and we uh, always have some wonderful questions that come from the audience, please put those in the Q&A box, which of course is different than the social chat box. So get your questions coming early and often, and we'll get to as many of those questions that we can. And if we don't have a chance to get to all of your questions, you can email us anytime at info at unleashresults.com. We'll get back to you promptly. And now just as a special sneak peek towards next week, in our final episode of season one, as a matter of fact, we're gonna be joined by thought leader and author, Tim Arnold, where we'll be, uh, we're gonna be discussing the power of healthy tension. So how do you manage conflicting points of view to make better decisions, build stronger relationships and lead better? It's a fascinating topic, it really is. And, it, and it's the type of topic that is not very intuitive. So it's, there, there's going to be some paradigm shifts that take place if you tune into that episode, I promise. So I hope to see you for the final season, or final episode of, uh, of season one. Now on with today's show. So we're very, very, very excited to be joined by our special guest and uh, longtime friend now, Jim Harris, I think it's safe to call him a longtime friend after working together this many, this many years. Uh, so Jim Harris is one of North America's foremost management consultants, public speakers, authors, and thinkers on change and leadership. He has 20 years experience as a professional speaker and a consultant, and he speaks internationally. Well, used to speak internationally and hope that returns soon at more than 40 conferences a year. So you think of the impact since the pandemic hit. And he discusses things uh, such as innovation and creativity, customer relationship management, e-learning, creating learning organizations, environmental leadership, energy efficiency, strategic planning, and creating common organizational mission and vision. He was one of the first seven Canadians personally trained by Al Gore to present the slideshow for an inconvenient truth. And he was also one of just 12 Canadians, just 12 Canadians 
who were licensed to publicly teach Dr. Stephen Covey's work, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I have a feeling that most people tuning in today have got a high level of familiarity with The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Jim works with leading businesses and Fortune 500 companies. He recently finished a global consulting contract with IBM and a related white paper on how low carbon leadership actually drives profitability. And his most recent book, Blindsided, is a number one international bestseller, having hit the top spot on the Financial Times of London's European edition of Best Business Books. He's also the author of The Learning Paradox, which appeared on numerous bestseller lists and co-author of the national bestseller, The 100 Best Companies to Work For in Canada. He's also principal at Strategic Advantage, and he previously held positions as a partner at Clean Tech Group uh, and, and affiliate at Co uh, Covey Leadership Center. In addition to his speaking and consulting engagements and books, Jim Harris writes for a number of publications, including the Globe and Mail, Profit Magazine, and Backbone Magazine. And we're uh, just so excited to spend some time with you here today, Jim. So welcome to the show. Great to be here, Jeff. And we have a lot, uh, lot to explore. And uh, I said at the onset that this is the fastest hour on the internet, and I'm, and I'm sticking to that. And we're going to explore today, uh, and to a large extent, how do you adapt your company in a digital age? And it's such an important topic, and it's even more important now than it was four months ago, and, and it was really important before that. But before we start to dive in to some of the concepts, some of the information, some of the data, I was wondering, Jim, if you could just share a little bit about your own, I guess your own foray into this, uh, into this particular endeavor and what got you so interested in the technology and innovation space? Well, way back when, more than 30 years ago, I wrote a book for the Financial Post called The 100 Best Companies to Work For in Canada. And it was a, a bestseller here in Canada. And it looked at what uh, really makes uh, a company exceptional uh, at the time. And it was so exciting that you had Tom Peters on last week or the week before. Uh, at the time, In Search of Excellence was really big, right? And uh, so Tom's work In Search of Excellence was big and it was really kind of like the Canadian version of that. And, and this was a surprising thing for me. The book came out in 1990 and then with the recession of 90 and 91, IBM laid off 200,000 people, which was half its worldwide workforce. So I came back to say, look, if the best companies don't offer job security, what offers job security? And that led to the second book, which was called The Learning Paradox. And it argued that 80% of the technology we'll use in our daily lives in just 10 years hasn't even been invented yet. So job security is based on learning changing and accepting uncertainty. And what we fear most as adults is learning, changing yeah. and uncertainty. Like, <laughs> and like this COVID crisis is the perfect example. We are having to learn, we're having to change and we're having to deal with uncertainty. And many people freak out about that. So I was arguing our job security is based on the very thing that we feel most uncomfortable with often as adults. So we have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And technology is certainly driving profound change. And that led to the third book. There were some other ones in between, but we won't talk about them. But the third one I'll talk about is called Blindsided. And it looks at how companies and organizations are completely caught off guard. So with exponentially changing technology, companies are having to change their business models and they're having to keep up and large organizations in general are not keeping up. Yeah, well, well said, Jim. So that is a good segue. And, and I thought where we would start uh, would be more, um, more focused discussion on what has happened since the pandemic hit and we went into global lockdown. Uh, what are you seeing in the world of technology in the world of business that has specifically been uh, sort of impacted because of our, our current reality? Well, what I'd like to argue is that every organization that has put at its heart, its central strategy of mobile first and digital transformation first is actually doing very well. And those that have resisted completely 
digital and mobile are being crushed. And I'll give a couple of examples. So number one is right now we're on a Zoom call, actually a Zoom webinar. And in December, Zoom had 10 million daily users. In April, that was 300 million daily participants. So the question, Jeff, is how many companies do you know who've grown their customer count 30x during COVID? (laughs) Like, not very many. So Zoom was perfectly positioned for the work at home environment, right? And many companies prohibited people from working from home. They thought they can't be productive or we can't trust them or blah, blah, blah. They had all sorts of rules and they were not ready. They didn't have, uh, their people didn't have laptops at home or webcams or, you know, like the Logitech headset I'm wearing right now or the beautiful Yeti, you know, Yeti, you know, high quality radio quality microphone I have. They didn't have all this stuff. Uh, because they weren't doing virtual, remote, uh, global webinars, right? We have this stuff, but the average work person didn't. So companies were caught off guard. And you can actually, Logitech has sold more peripherals that enable web conferencing in the last three months than the prior year. So like, it's exploding. Um, Another example that I'd give is uh, e-commerce. And uh, Andrea, if you can put up the slide on uh, the valuation, Andrea is just going to, the one before that, Andrea is just going to put up a slide uh, about Amazon's value. And I checked before our webinar today, Jeff, and Amazon today is valued at $1.3 trillion, like Dr. Evil, trillion dollars. And if, if you compare that to these eight other retailers added together, and then you triple that number, it's just equal to Amazon. Like, that is wild. And next slide, Andrea. If you look at the growth of e-commerce, way back in um, in 09, uh, e-commerce was just 5.6% of total U.S. uh, commerce uh, retail. But by 2019, it had grown 11%. So it took 10 years to grow 11% to 16.3. What has the COVID crisis done? The eight weeks of COVID have grown e-commerce by as much as 10 years. So this is accelerating the trend to digital. So Amazon has put mobile first, digital transformation at the very heart of its strategy. And every other retailer is being crushed with the exception of grocery stores and pharmacy stores. So every other retailer that has ignored e-commerce is being decimated. And in fact, the analyst firm UBS predicts that 100,000 retail stores are gonna close over the next few years, really because of this COVID crisis. Yeah, yeah, those are some alarming uh, alarming figures. I am interested in the Walmart story. Like, uh, it's been fairly well documented that Walmart was not oblivious to the notion that e-commerce was going to be was was going to be um, uh, was going to be huge, but they were unable to act and mobilize uh, their innovation strategy in the e-commerce platform because of internal deficiencies and discussions and uh, and dysfunction. It seems like they have got some of that stuff sorted out now. So do you have any commentary? Like, I'm interested in the long game here. How much of a dent in Amazon's market share is Walmart or some other retailers potentially uh, going to be able to achieve, do you think? Well, Walmart has done really well with its e-commerce platform during COVID. Yeah. Uh, Walmart was open. Their physical stores were all open during this because they have grocery and pharmacy. In other words, the diversification of product offerings is what, uh, you know, saved their bacon on physical stores because grocery is open and pharmacy is open. So Walmarts are open. But their e-commerce has been huge. They grew 74%. So they have uh, grown at the the same rate that uh, Amazon has grown at. And they're firmly entrenched at number two uh, in the U.S. for e-commerce. Yeah. So 
Walmart has benefited. Now, it's a big company and it has thrown a lot of resources once it realized it was getting crushed by Amazon retailing. So, you know, you can't just wait until the pandemic hits and then say, okay, now we have to get to e-commerce. It's been a long game for Walmart, but they're firmly number two in the U.S. So this COVID crisis has been very good for Walmart. Yeah, and of course, an interesting announcement this week with uh, Canadian-based tech giant uh, Shopify. So very curious to see how that partnership and collaboration will materialize uh, in, in the, on the year and years ahead. Uh, Jim, you mentioned something else that, that, that really stuck out for me here in, this, in your opening, and it's, and it's the concept and the notion of being a mobile-first company. And I, and I think that uh, on, on the surface, we understand that as business owners. But when I think of examples like Zoom, one of the assumptions I, is I make is that, well, they were a tech company all along and they're just, they're just capitalizing on the way that they started to begin with. What I, what I find a lot more difficult to understand is how does a traditional business like a, a, a restaurant or a consulting firm or even just any kind of store, any kind of company, like a construction company is an example. Like how does a, a, an average company like that that's been around for a long time uh, start to actually transition into becoming a mobile first company? Well, uh, this is a very hard thing to do. Let me ask you this, Jeff, who is closest to the future? The young people. Exactly. The, the 65 year old CEO who has, uh, you know, his or her assistant print out all their emails. Yeah. The 18 year old who's on Tinder. Who does all the strategic planning? 65 year old the four, the 40 the 44 year old devilishly handsome uh and uh 40, <laughs> the 42 year old uh, brilliant uh, co-ce andrea <laughs> yeah. but in general the people who do the strategic planning skew older and the 18 year olds are most disenfranchised from strategic planning so my question is is it any wonder we only get incremental change so my question would be, how do we unleash the innovation and creativity of Gen Z and millennials? Mm-hmm. Well, we can't have the approval for innovation products being with the 65-year-old CEO who doesn't know whether to swipe right or swipe left on Tinder because they just don't know. So I wouldn't you know, be a very good person to do app development uh, because... I'm not on Tinder. Uh, you know, Tinder has actually changed the entire game of apps. Yeah. So really, how is our organization employing the intellectual uh, creativity of Gen Zs and millennials? And do you have any structures for doing that? For instance, you can have what's called a shadow board. You have an executive committee at uh, results and uh, do you have a shadow board of millennials that you run the decisions by? And I remember when I was at Beck's, the first year you brought me to Beck's in Kananaskis, and I just so loved it. God, we live in God's country. It's so beautiful out there in Kananaskis. And I was talking a lot about thinking differently, consulting your millennials, uh, doing things differently, thinking about different business models like Airbnb. And the next year when you invited me back, Uh, Jeff at Altamita came up to me and he said, Jim, uh, you know, I got to tell you about what happened in the intervening year. Um, You told me to consult my millennials, think differently, Airbnb. So I wanted to expand into the U.S. Now, the way I would historically have done it is a 15 million design build custom manufacturing facility. But I, I did what you suggested. I consulted my millennials, thought about different business models. And instead, what we did is we found a brand new manufacturing facility that had just been built, but they'd overbuilt to allow for future expansion. They have, you know, uh, 50% of the room they didn't need for at least three years. So I got to rent it pennies to the dollar. So I got to de-risk my expansion. I got to turn a CapEx into an OpEx. I've been profitable from day one. Uh, the cash flow is beautiful and we're making uh, money hand over fist. And so I said, Jeff, 
you know, coming here to Bex was really worth $15 million to you. So you can buy my steak dinner tonight. <laughs> and he said, of course, Jeff. Now, uh, this is what the value of thinking differently is. And so the very first thing is leaders, Stephen used to say that the first virtue of leadership is humility. Leaders have to have the humility to say, I don't have all the answers. I don't live in a world of swiping right or left on Tinder. We have to have systems that engage our young people as you know, uh, Jeff did at Altamida to come up with new ways of working. And that was worth $15 million. And it all started because he changed the way he saw the world, which changes the way he behaves, which changes the results he gets. Yeah, absolutely. And I can imagine now that anybody watching this is frantically uh, Googling Altamida. And I just wanted just I just wanted to correct that just to say it's Almeda. So it's Almeda oh. piling. It's, it's close, Jim. Uh, Almeda piling, and they uh, they do a wonderful job with helical piles all uh, all around North America. So uh, yeah, Google them and buy some helical piles, even if you don't need some. Uh, so that's that's great, Jim. So there's very much. Uh, I'm always interested in even though things are changing so so quickly and and you know, exponentially, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And there's so there's themes around communication. There's themes around leadership. There's themes around you know tapping into the talented people that you have throughout the organization. So those are all great. Now, I also wonder on more of a tactical side, Jim, like would you have an, some examples of, of uh, here's an actual like technology step that a company could take just to try to experiment more with, uh, with becoming a more mobile friendly organization? Well, uh, let's, let's take one step back and yeah. look at why am I talking about mobile first? Yeah. So uh, App Annie, which is an analyst firm, studied uh, IPOs, tech IPOs in 2019. And tech IPOs that had a mobile first strategy had an 825% higher valuation than companies that had no mobile presence, okay? Yeah. Like, this isn't like it's, it's good, it's nice. This is data. This is fact. So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the 1990s, if you or I had a car accident, it took on average eight weeks until we got our check in the mail from our insurance company, okay? Lemonade is an insurance company out of New York City that does tenant insurance, and you can only apply for it on your smartphone. It's aimed at Gen Zs and millennials, and you can get a policy for as little as five bucks a month, 60 bucks a year. The insurance industry doesn't want to write $60 policies. Yeah. They're not mobile centric, but they have a claim settlement record, world record, that they settled a claim in three seconds. So what happens? The kid had his parka stolen at a restaurant. This is pre-COVID, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. So you go on and you answer all the claim bot questions by speaking the answers into your smartphone. You take a picture of the police report and then you hit submit. It goes then up into the cloud and it runs against 18 fraud algorithms and comes back down onto your smartphone three seconds later and says you're approved. Yeah. Your claim is approved. So going from eight weeks of paper pushing non-value add activity to instantly approving your claim, that is wild. Now, Lemonade has uh, the goal of having 80% of all claims instantly settled like that. Yeah. So think about all the non-value added work that they've driven out of the process. So they can offer dollar for dollar coverage, uh, better coverage, at the same coverage at 65% less than the average insurance company. So this is disruptive because they have digitized using the smartphone insurance. So this is the central theme. Companies that have been digital transformation first, mobile first are crushing it. And yeah. those that resist are being crushed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great story. I, mean, I have a question that came in from Randy and I think, I think it's a timely one, it's a good one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Will the older establishment CEO still be as relevant if growth tech companies continue to, to disrupt and accelerate change 
faster than the establishment can keep up, can keep up and become more valuable uh, and influential? This is a great question. Um, so I don't want to be ageist here. I don't want to suggest just because you have, uh, like in my case, no hair up top. Yeah. You don't even have gray hair, Jeff. But it, just because you don't have, oh, one, one gray hair. Just because you don't have any hair or gray hair doesn't mean that you can't be cutting edge. Like Andy Grove at Intel, cutting edge. Um, when he was uh, CEO of General Electric, Jack Welsh, who just died a few months ago, he didn't know anything about the internet. But back to Stephen Covey's leadership, the first virtue is having humility. Yeah. He had some 20-somethings who came into his office every week and mentored him on the internet. So he was voted the best CEO by other CEOs and knew nothing about the internet, but he had the humility to say, okay, I'm going to have to begin to think about this new technology, how it's going to impact GE's business. Yeah. So uh, what are the struct, do you have, do you do, it's called reverse mentoring. Do you have people in your organization who do reverse mentoring? so that the leadership of the organization understands some of these trends. Yeah, yeah, that's good, Jim. And, and I think that uh, you know, growth mindset is important, uh, devoting your life to being a lifelong learner. Uh, a company doesn't grow, um, I don't think ever, because of the CEO or the, you know, the senior leadership. It grows because they're people. And, and uh, that, won't, that will continue to be the case and more so than ever. The ones that are ambitious learners that create good cultures that have a really clear winning prop value proposition in the marketplace that tap into the insight of everybody in their companies. Those are the ones that will win regardless of age is my belief. And I, I meet some 75 year old people that are some of the youngest people I've ever met. And I meet some 25 year olds that are some of the oldest, most rigid, closed minded thinkers I've ever met. So I'm encouraged by that because I think it's mindset, it's not, it's not age. I'd agree. And Andrea, if you can put up the slide on the survey around innovation with red bars, this is uh, really interesting. Uh, this is a survey of CEOs asking them, is innovation important? And like surprise, surprise, 88% of CEOs say innovation is essential to their top line and their profitability. I don't know what the other 12 were thinking, but 88% say. But here's the kicker. Look at the very bottom bar. Only 22% have a formal system of innovation. Uh, Jeff, imagine we said that about uh, you know sales, for instance. 88% of CEOs say sales are essential to their top line and their bottom line, but only 22% have a sales process. Only 22% have salespeople. Only 22% have support systems like a CRM like Salesforce. Only 22% tie compensation on a quarterly or annual basis to uh, performance. The other roughly 80% of companies just hope that sales will magically, organically, instantly happen, you know, like apples falling onto them onto their heads like that would be ludicrous and yet that's what we're doing with innovation next slide andrea and why do we have to have systems to engage every single person in our organization in innovation because our employees are the best source of new ideas for innovation partners are second and customers are third like who thinks about customers like how do we engage our customers yeah, literally into our business. Thank you, Andrea, for those slides. They're great. Yeah, Jim, are there, and it's interesting to talk to apply the sales uh, comparison to it. So uh, the way that companies approach sales in the 50s and the 60s is uh, the way that we're approaching innovation right now. But one of the problems with that is that the world is changing faster than it ever has been before. So we don't have as much time to catch up uh, if we get left behind. What, if I walked, and I think you've hit on some of them already, but if, if, if there's others, I'm wondering, I'm curious. If I walked into a company that was good at that, that had a system and a process for innovation, what are some of the behaviors I would see inside of those organizations? What am I seeing those people doing? Well, first off is the structure of the organization. You know, we have typically hierarchical structures where, you know, if I have an idea, I get permission from my boss who runs it by his boss and uh, her boss and, you know, and then 
if it involves collaboration between say the marketing team and product development and their R&D, we have to go up to our bosses, they have to all agree, then it comes back down. In other words, this is a, a very slow, archaic Byzantine process, as opposed to saying, we're gonna empower people to engage in thousands of little experiments. We're not betting big sums of money on them, but they're doing things like, no CEO can evaluate whether an app swipe right or left is valuable for their company because they don't use any apps. Um, so how do we unleash that power? So I'd ask you, who's in charge of Wikipedia? The world. Yes. So leadership is setting up systems and structures that empower people to do the work yeah. and build incentives into the system. So for instance, if I create a lot of really good entries into Wikipedia, the system will come to me and say, would you like to be an editor? And if I say yes, I now get to edit other people's things because by peer review, my entries have deemed to be valuable. If I'm a really good editor, it will say, would you like to become an editor of editors? Yeah. And in other words, the incentives are built into the system to mm -hmm. reward good work. Mm -hmm. And we crowdsource the evaluation of performance. And if you look at Wikipedia, it has more than a hundred million hours of volunteer time invested in. Like who's paying us? No one. We're creating the entries because we love the topics we write on. If you look at the word amateur, it's from the Latin root word amo amore, to love. An amateur loves what they're passionate about. So we have unleashed the creativity of people all around the world to create Wikipedia entries and there are more Wikipedia entries than Encyclopedia Britannica. And in peer-reviewed studies, they're just as good and they're updated. Like uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, the physical volumes are updated every five years, whether it needs it or not. But with Wikipedia, if there's a tsunami in Japan, the entry is created today. Yeah, 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 that's good, Jim. And, and that's, con that's certainly consistent with uh, any of the, the organizations that are that like just Google, Google is such an easy example, but anytime I've seen a representative from Google speak at a conference, uh, they implore the audience that uh, innovation is just as deliberate, as well thought out and as strategic as any other aspect of your business. Um, so that's good. And I think the other thing that we have seen uh, in uh, even just uh, the local level companies that have been able to adapt during COVID they've put some constructs in front of their people and said, look, we want to unleash you to go and do the things that, that you do best. Use your insight, use your intuition, look for patterns and themes and, and use that information and insight to come up with ideas that you think are going to be valuable to the marketplace, but not in the absence of at least some basic constructs to guide that creativity. So that's, that's wonderful. Probably a good segue to Jim. We are, um, we are offering a couple of, uh, innovation readiness workshops at a very low price for people that are on on the call today. I'm sure there's people that are thinking there, my goodness, what do we do with all of this? How do we adapt? How do we reorganize? How do we structure our people and mobilize our talent to try to get better at some of this stuff? We want to help you do that a little bit. So we've got, we've got some information there. So Jim, I want to I want to move now into uh, just some other areas here. And, and one of them is about competitive advantages. So I think it, it's a good segue there as well. Competitive advantages seem to fade faster than ever uh, as technology is democratizing things. How do you maintain a competitive advantage in a world that's changing so quickly? Um, Andrea, can you put up the slide about uh, Tesla? Um, so this is really fun. This is uh, looking at uh, Tesla's valuation uh, compared to Detroit automakers. And uh, this slide blows me away. You can take the value of Ford, add it to General Motors, add it to Fiat Chrysler. So you add those three together and you triple it. And that is less than Tesla is worth. Like if that slide doesn't blow you away, I don't know what does. And so my question is, why does Tesla have a, such a high valuation?
thanks so much, Andrea, for that. So why does Tesla have a, such a high valuation? Because they're not just innovating around cars. They're not a car company, actually. They're an energy company, really. They are a tech company. They're a computer company that has to, happens to have a product with wheels. They also have energy storage. So in Southern Australia, the, the largest uh, energy battery in Australia is backing up their electric grid, which is radically disrupting electricity prices on the spot market for uh, when uh, you know power is needed on the drop of a hat. So Tesla, here's the problem with the traditional car companies. It takes eight years for a car to go from concept through marketing and through design and through a pilot and through testing and you know eight years later you get something but i'm going to argue today that we're going to have cheaper electric cars by 2022 to 2024 than uh, depending which analyst you believe than a gas-powered car this is cheaper to buy they're already cheaper to operate and they're cheaper to maintain. 80% less cost on the fuel, electricity versus gas, 80% less cost on maintenance. Okay, so, but cheaper to buy up front. Yeah. Number one, who's gonna buy a car? Secondly, the business model is changing. We're getting to autonomous vehicles and the price of a car has remained constant for 100 years per mile at 70 cents adjusted for inflation. But once we have autonomous vehicles, it goes down to 25%. That's almost two-thirds reduction. So who's going to buy a car if I can call an autonomous Uber or Lyft? So I'm predicting that the car companies are going to fall off a cliff. I've been, I was saying this back at Bex three years ago. And this graph I just showed is proving out what I was saying three years ago. We're going to see bankruptcies in major car companies around the world in the next couple of years because they just cannot change as fast as the market's changing. Whereas Tesla is scrambling to, uh, to keep up. They're building new gigafactories. They have the one in China working, they're building one in Germany. Like yeah. they're expanding exponentially every single year. The old car companies are contracting because they just can't bring out, they can't keep up. So is it too late? For some of these auto manufacturers, is it too late for them? Some of them, yes, because the, the capacity is going to go down. When we have autonomous fleets, a car in an autonomous fleet will do 300,000, 500,000 kilometers a year, whereas you and I only drive our vehicles 16,000 a year. That's the average for Canadians. So we only use our cars 4% of the time. That's a huge waste of a very capital intense asset. So if I can get around just as easily with mobility as a solution, uh, Andrea, can you put up the graph of the chart of uh, New York City cabs? Um, so this chart shows the number of trips for New York City taxis in yellow, and then Uber and Lyft. Right now, Uber is doing twice as many trips per day as New York taxis. Lyft is almost more than New York taxis. Next slide, Andrea, looks at the value of a medallion. So to drive a taxi in New York City, you have to buy a medallion. And those peaked at $1.1 million uh, just in the middle of 2013. They've now traded at $110,000. Uh, that's a 90% reduction in value. In other words, if you don't pay attention to disruption, this is what can happen to your market. And I'll give you a Canadian example just for, for um, comparison. In Toronto, adjusted for inflation, the top price for a uh, taxi plate, we call them plates, not medallions, was uh, $405,000. You can now buy a taxi plate on Kijiji, for $20,000. That's a 95% reduction in value. In fact, yep. Uber is worth more than every taxi cab company in North America added together. So uh, number one, this shows the value of digital first, digital transformation and mobile first, okay? Yep. Secondly, it's not just about the technology, it's about the business model too. 
So Jeff, the product is the car and a driver. So that's the product. So would you agree that a taxi and Uber are the same with the product? Yes. They both do involve a driver and a car getting me from A to B. Yep. 75% of the innovation effort in companies is around product. Yeah. But let's talk about business model innovation. If I can deliver a person from point A to point B in a vehicle, could I deliver a burger? Yes? yes. Okay, we'll call it Uber Eats. Yeah. Uber Eats grew by 89% in April. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's digital first. Yeah. Uh, if I can deliver a person from A to B, if I can deliver a burger from A to B, could I deliver a manila envelope or a banker's box? Absolutely. Let's call it Uber Courier. Yeah. How about this? My dog is vomiting. I don't yeah. want to go sit for three hours in a veterinarian waiting room with other people who could have COVID. Yeah. So I call Uber Pet. And Uber Pet comes, picks up Buffy, takes Buffy to the vet. The vet calls me. I tell, we decide what to do about Buffy. They fix Buffy. And the next day after she's remained there overnight, Uber Pet comes and picks up Buffy and brings her home. Yeah. Like, you think this is far off? This is working in certain markets, okay? What about Uber liquor? That might be popular during COVID, eh? Like Bob and Doug McKenzie would go for it. <laughs> and, and what about Uber weed? Because marijuana is legal in Canada. Oh, Uber yeah. weed, that'd be a good one, eh? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I like that, eh? So if I'm focused on business model innovation, I can be doing and disrupting all sorts of markets. Yeah. It's not about product. It is about innovate on product. Don't get me wrong, but that should be 10, 15% of our focus. Most of our focus should be in business model innovation, but all the effort in organizations or at least 75% of it is aimed at product. Yeah. So we have to innovate in how we innovate. Yeah. We need, that's why we need training for every single person. Stephen Covey used to have a bias. He used to say, I believe every single person should be trained in the seven habits because that creates a common language. Yeah. It changes the culture. It engages people. And that's what we need to do with innovation. Every single person needs to be trained in innovation. Why is it important? How do we do it? Why are organizations typically classically bad at it. How do we change our systems and structures to accelerate innovation? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Lisa has, I wanna, and she's got two questions and they fit together nicely, I think. So I'm gonna try to do my best here to, to compact, condense and, and still uh, capture the essence. So Lisa is part of a small charity and it's been nearly destroyed and very, very sorry to hear that Lisa. Uh, so nearly destroyed by COVID because they depend on face-to-face presentations in schools and sports organizations. So they're lifting and shifting their program into a, into a virtual program. And it's going to be a fantastic program, she says, but how do they market it? So it's, there's the marketing of things online when you've been doing it, uh, when you've been, been doing it face to face. And then she also says, we're talking about massive global companies, but what about the small lean company that doesn't have a deep pool of talent or deep pockets? How do they survive? in this rapidly changing world. And Lisa, I put my hand up to ask that same question. So thank you for posing it. Great, uh, two questions, Lisa. Thank you for asking them. So, <clears throat> you know, I was working with um, a group of insurance uh, brokers all across the country. And, uh, you know, we have this notion in our head that AI, artificial intelligence, you know, the starting salary for an AI specialist is a quarter million dollars and they work at Google. And like as a small insurance brokerage, there's no way we could do anything like that. So uh, this small brokerage uh, in Welland, which is in the Niagara region, went and they got an intern from the local uh, university there called Brock University, who was working in data science and AI. And um, this young student came in and they began running some experiments. And one of the first experiments was, um, when do people call uh, to want to talk to a broker? And do you know what? There was some like staggering results. Uh, 
people want to call during their lunch hour between 12 and four, 12 and one. And when were all the brokers taking their lunch? From 12 to one. In other words, if we care about customer service, uh, why are we all you know, vacating the office when call volumes are at the highest? So, but you don't have to hire a data scientist to figure out this kind of stuff. But this, what I'm arguing is there is such low hanging fruit in improving the way our organizations work. We don't have to have like data scientists or we don't need Google to solve all our problems. We just have to begin to look at the way we work differently. Anyways, this was the 101, the very first insight that the data scientists had. Then they began segmenting their market and looking at it differently. So some people have cottages and some people have watercraft, like a, a water boat or a sea dew or something. So how do we begin to segment our customer base to see how we could offer a secondary or tertiary product on top of just the regular product we do? Um, and then how do we predict which customers will likely have a cottage? Um, so rather than calling all 4,000 of our customers or mailing them all, let's use some data mining to predict which ones have it so we get a better ROI on our sales effort. So they began doing all sorts of things, but this was a tiny, tiny brokerage. So this goes back to my point. Focus on digital first, focus on mobile first. We're gonna learn and grow and make mistakes, but we're also gonna get benefits. In other words, why wait until COVID hits to, that is forcing us all to change? We need to embrace digital first, digital transformation. Uh, the, the Chinese Lao Tzu had a, a, you know, a, a saying, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. <laughs> if you haven't started digital, okay. Okay, we can't change the past, but start now. So we can start uh, with baby steps yeah. and learn and grow. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And, and, and Lisa, Lisa, part of the answer, I think, to, to your question lies in asking for help. And a lot of times when things get tough, we, 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 we sort of resort to a closed office and we try to figure things out on our own and it's hard to ask for help. <clears throat> but there's a lot of resources out there where you can go trusted communities, um, trusted advisors, as an example. So reach out to them. And even this for us, Jim, like us being on this episode of Unleashed today, four months ago, if you would have told our, our team that we were going to launch a weekly webinar series, we would have laughed and said, <laughs> yeah, what, we would have said, what year is that going to happen? And you introduce a foreign element into your business or into your industry or into the world, and it forces you to adapt uh, out of survival. And one of the things that was helpful for us is we just tried to figure out what is the essence of the reason that people engage with us to begin with, no matter what the platform is. And, and we said, okay, here's the core reasons, right? It's, it's for help, it's for assistance, it's for confidence, it's for clarity, it's for research and tools and thought leadership. And then we started to think about, well, what are all of the different ways that we could provide that in an online world and who could we leverage to make it different? And lo and behold, now we've had thousands and thousands of people in three months that have joined into this session. And four months ago, we never thought we would have done something like this. And even one week into it, we didn't even know if we were going to keep it going, if anybody would even pay attention. So uh, be prepared to fail, take risks, but make sure that those risks are based on the things that people value and covet you for to begin with, I think would be, would be some, some of my commentary on that. I want to throw in uh, one more thing in response to Lisa and what you just said, Jeff. Um, when we change, it offers huge new opportunities, which we never perceived before. So for instance, um, if you'd invited Tom Peters to come to Bex to present at Bex, he would have given you a $100,000 bill to come and, and speak. But you reached out to him and he spoke uh, with you on Results Unleashed a week or two ago. That was a huge opportunity. That wouldn't have happened if we didn't go digital. I wanna look at one different thing. It's not just about going digital. It's not just about an app. It's about changing mindset and business models. So what is the taxi industry doing to compete with Uber? Well, in Toronto, Bex Taxi is spending a quarter million dollars developing an app. And I say, good for them. 
But Diamond Taxi is doing the same thing. There are like 19 or 20 taxi cab companies in Toronto all spending a quarter million dollars on their own app. Now, I don't know about you, Jeff, but the reason I got this smartphone is to key my data into 19 different taxi apps with my fat thumbs. Not. They don't get it. I, I haven't downloaded a single taxi app. But the industry needs to think at a higher level, um, what I call a meta level. They need to develop one global app for taxi cab companies, call it like, because I'm such a great marketer, global taxi app, right? Yeah. And I would download that. I only have Uber and Lyft on my phone and I use it everywhere in the world. But imagine 19,000 global taxi cab companies collaborated now, yeah. the benefit would be they'd only share in one nineteen thousandth of the development cost. Right. And I would use it. And I'd use it in every country and it would transact on my credit card in Canadian dollars, just like Uber and Lyft anywhere in the world do. Yeah. But, so I'm not saying digital first, just pave the cow path. What I'm saying is it digital first, mobile first. Yes. But we have to also think about our mindsets and our business models. So it's not just about the technology. In fact, it's more about people. It's about culture. It's about change. It's about training and development. It's about mindset. All these things are just, if not more important than the technology. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I've been, I've wondered for a while without knowing all the intricacies of, 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 of the taxi industry, why it hasn't moved to more of an Expedia type of a model, just like what you said. So on Expedia, there's all the, you know, hundreds of hotels that I can book through one, uh, through one resource, one application. So yeah, that's great, Jim. Now, what's, uh, Randy's got another good question here. What do you see as the next big disruption? And he's, he's suggesting, is it plant-based foods? Is it, a, is it, uh, what kind of growing technology are you seeing? But what's the next big disruption? There's so many. There are hundreds, thousands of disruptions. But uh, I do uh, agree that plant-based foods are uh, a huge uh, surge. There's also cloning meats where rather than kill an animal, they put a needle into a young calf's most tender area. It doesn't really hurt. It's just like getting a needle at the doctor. And they pull out this uh, you know, tenderloin cut, and they clone it. So it's cloned meat. Um, we're, we're seeing urban agriculture, vertical farming, because more than half the world's population lives in cities. Um, that's around farming and agriculture. What COVID has shown is that our supply chain, our $62 trillion global supply chain has some real problems. Like we couldn't get enough PPE. So we had outsourced uh, the manufacture of PPE to China and we couldn't get it fast enough. Or you have Mr. Trump saying 3M can't deliver N95 face masks to Toronto. So there's a great story. We, but the game has changed. Uh, we now have 3D printing in Italy when people were dying of COVID um, in a horrific number. Um, they didn't have certain parts of ventilators so the manufacturer allowed people with 3D printers to print those and lives were saved. In other words, people in their homes were printing, 3D printing PPE. There's a great story on CBC, look it up about a 13 year old kid in the Okotoks in Alberta who was printing PPE for his local hospitals. When you have a 13 year old kid able to solve supply chain problems, the game has changed. In other words, we have distributed manufacturing with 3D printing, just like we had distributed uh, entry in Wikipedia. And one more thing, we have to think implicatively. In your average gas car, okay, there are 2000 moving parts. In a Tesla, there are 20 moving parts. Yeah. So think about a car manufacturer that needs all 2,000 parts, otherwise it can't ship a car. Like if you're missing one part, the car doesn't work. Yeah. So it's not just about uh, how do we manufacture and about supply chain, it's about redesigning our products for simplicity. In other words, if I just need a part and can 3D print it, because there are only 20 parts, moving parts in a Tesla, I can 
I can continue to produce Teslas even when my supply chain won't give me parts because it's redesigned to just 20 parts, not 2000 parts. So it's not just about technology. It's changing mindset. It's changing process. It's changing business model. Yeah. And I said this would be the fastest uh, hour on the internet. I, I stand by it even more after this discussion, Jim, but I have to ask you just from a sort of a higher level and a more humanistic sort of level, uh, what's the impact of COVID and the pandemic uh, sort of for you personally and then just globally on human connection and on how we think and how we live and how we interact with one another? What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, Jeff, again, you know, is the glass half full or is it half empty? You know, I can participate in webinars all around the world with people I wouldn't otherwise get to meet unless I, you know, took a very expensive flight, right? So I'm getting, you know, you, we got to interact with uh, Tom Peters a couple of weeks ago because of COVID. Do you know that 70% of the cost of classic traditional training and education for corporations is the airfare, hotel rooms, and meals? 70% of the cost of classic training and development. So this is allowing us to have more bang for our buck with training and development. Now, it's not that we're going to get, when we are able to meet again in person, it's not that we're going to get rid of in-person meetings. We still need that. But I'm actually able to connect really well with people all around the world using Zoom. I'd like Andrea to put up the uh, Disruption Magazine cover if she can. Um, If you've enjoyed this seminar and you want to get from me a... uh, a copy of this article. This is uh, an article uh, that was the cover story in Disruption Magazine. It uh, is really a, a fun story. You can see it behind me right here. Um, maybe I'll just share my screen. Oh, there we go. Um, so uh, uh, just a question. Uh, I don't know, Jeff, uh, but they sent a professional photographer um, to our office to take 300 pictures of me, and this is the one they picked. Can that's you the best it? one they could find of the litter. I I don't know. Like, do you, Jeff? Do you think I a look uh, sinister? Well, let me let me throw it up. Um, okay, so everyone can vote now. Uh, do you think I a look uh, sinister? Uh, B. Do I look uh, evil? Uh, C, do I look demonic, or uh, D, all of the above? (laughs) And, uh, you know, people are voting fast and furiously here, and uh, it looks like uh, all of the above has got two-thirds of the answers at the moment. (laughs) So I'm all of the above. But if if you would like this, uh, uh, so I'm just going to end the polling there, uh, share the results. So these are the results. 64% of people say I look uh, all of the above. Yeah, uh, Andrea, if we can have the next slide, that'd be great. So if you want to get a copy of that digitally, just email me, jim at jimharris.com. Sure. Um, you can also uh, connect with me on LinkedIn if you want. Um, or uh, you can uh, email me, jim at jimharris.com. And one of the things that would help me is if uh, I'm just going to share my... Oh, there we go. Um, uh if you want to, um, here we go. Boom. Sounds good, Jim. And Jim, we're running out of time. So we're going to make sure that er- the information is going to uh, get out to the audience when we wrap up here. Great. Uh, but if anybody can think of an event where I could add value for you, please email me or connect on LinkedIn. So it's been great to be here. And thank you so much for the invitation uh, to be here. Thank you, Jim. Uh, This was a very informative hour and uh, we're very grateful for your time and your willingness to come on the show here. And you've been a great friend of ours through the years. And and if you want to stay connected uh, on an even even deeper level, as I mentioned, you can email us anytime at info at unleashedresults.com. There's a lot of questions we couldn't get to today. So get those questions to us through the email and we promise we'll get back to you for some follow-up conversations. Jim's got a very informative Twitter handle at Jim Harris. You can find him there. His website jimharris.com and then please uh, fill out the unleashed feedback survey 
And we do have uh, some special offers, as I mentioned at the onset. So we're offering up a, uh, an innovation readiness assessment for your own company. This is for your very own leadership team. It's a two hour session. Uh, we normally charge in excess of $1,600 for this initial session, but we're making two of them available today for $995. Very relevant to the discussion today to help you form some thoughts, some ideas, and more importantly, some actions that your entire company can take to compete better and adapt in a digital space. And then please, I hope you join us next week. It's our final episode of season one, where we're gonna be joined by Tim Arnold, author and thought leader, we're going to be exploring something that's probably very unfamiliar to most of us is the power of un, uh, the power of healthy tension, what that means. And there's various tensions that inform all of our decision making personally and as teams. And if we have a better understanding of what that means, we can build better relationships, make better decisions and ultimately become better leaders. So thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Always a pleasure to spend time with you. Uh, be well and I uh, hope there's some things from today's episode that you can start to apply to your businesses immediately. Take care, everyone.